If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Good morning. Welcome on this freezing second Sunday of Epiphany from Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Will you pray with me? It's comforting to know that it's been this way before, Holy One. The third chapter of the book of Samuel tells us the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were not widespread. And if we're honest, you seem pretty quiet these days. We are having a hard time seeing anything beyond what is right in front of us. It seems that the priest Eli and the boy Samuel knew that feeling. Although, as it turns out, you actually were still speaking. The story tells us that you called out to Samuel, who mistook you for Eli, not once, not twice, but three times. After the third time Eli realized what was happening, he told Samuel to be still. And when he heard your voice again, to say, speak, for your servant is listening. So that's what Samuel did. After that, the two of you were in conversation his whole life long. If this story was true for Eli and Samuel, we trust it can be true for us. When good news seems rare, Help us to hold fast to hope. When visions are not widespread, lift our gaze. Be with us as we help each other respond to your call. Settle the loudness in our head so that we are quiet enough to hear our heart. Even now, we still ourselves and borrow Samuel's line. Speak, Holy One, for we are listening. With hearts set on staying in the conversation, we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the 139th Psalm, verses 1 through 6 and 13 through 18. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to the end. I am still with you. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. As you know, I am a lectionary preacher, meaning that I choose one of the four texts suggested by the Revised Common Lectionary from which to preach every Sunday. There is, of course, nothing wrong with going off lectionary. We do this occasionally for sermon series. And likewise, there is nothing wrong with not following the lectionary, period. None of the pastors I grew up with used the lectionary. It isn't the end-all, be-all, of course, but it can act as a safeguard against preferential preaching, cherry-picking texts, depending on what you want to say. I've experienced what Reverend Amy Butler, a fellow preacher woman raised in the Southern Baptist Church, says to be true. I found, she says, the assigned lectionary texts help me remember that those 20 or so minutes in the pulpit every week are not either an opportunity to showcase every single thing I learned in seminary, nor an occasion to hog the microphone for the purpose of pontificating on whatever happened to be on my mind when I woke up that morning. Instead, good preaching is one of the most effective leadership tools a pastor has at her disposal, a perpetual opportunity to open the text and invite the people of God into regular conversation about eternal truths that speak to immediate concerns. This Sunday comes right in the middle of Mayflower's two-week stint hosting the photojournalism traveling exhibit, Focus on Abortion, created by author and photographer Rosalind Banish, which introduces the stories of individuals who have had abortions and others who are close to the abortion experience, including partners and professionals who provide abortion. Each person is represented by a photographic portrait and a first-person narrative, and you can visit that for all of this week and including next Sunday. So what is the suggested psalm for this Sunday? Psalm 139. Super. Super, because Psalm 139 includes some of the ver verses that are most beloved 
by the pro-life movement. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. For decades, Psalm 139 has been a byword of the anti-abortion movement printed on posters in crisis pregnancy centers, written on signs of abortion protesters, and linked into the brochures shoved into the hands of anyone walking into a Planned Parenthood clinic. Of course, this is the psalm for today. As Michael Luau explains, to many evangelicals who oppose abortion, the verses speak directly to when life begins at the moment of conception. I'd summarize Psalm 139 as suggesting that in the womb, from the very first point of conception, it's God at work, said Scott B. Ray, a professor of Christian ethics at Talbot School of Theology and Bible University, an evangelical school outside of Los Angeles. One th Psalm 139 is offered as proof that the Bible is pro-life. But to be fair, evangelicals are not monolith when it comes to Psalm 139. Other evangelical Bible scholars differ. In this case, the writer of Psalms, which is essentially a collection of songs, is using poetic imagery to celebrate God's special relationship with God's people, the Israelites, and God's promise to be with them for a thousand generations, said William A. Van Garamen, a professor of Old Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, an evangelical school outside of Chicago. The issue is not so much of when the moment of conception is or the beginning of life, but rather that they cannot see life apart from their relationship with the Lord, Professor Van Gieremen said. Psalm 139 is not the only text that is used in the debate about abortion, and conservative evangelicals are certainly not the only people to use scripture as a basis for how they approach the issue. Progressive Christians do this too, although the text we typically lean on isn't included in the three-year cycle of the lectionary at all. Not because it is used by the pro-choice crowd, but because not all scripture makes the cut in the lectionary. While there are some verses and stories that make repeat appearances throughout this three-year cycle, some of scripture is left out entirely. Exodus 21, which is the text progressive people of faith often highlight in the abortion debate, is one of those texts. Exodus 21 describes a situation in which a pregnant woman who is injured in a fight between two men has a miscarriage. The penalty is the payment of a fine unless the woman, not the fetus, dies, in which case, the text says, the husband can exact life for life. This text is usually offered as proof that scripture assumes a fetus is not a person, and so we say the Bible is clearly pro-choice. We know, though, don't we, that the Bible doesn't say anything. We interpret it. We approach the text with reverence, not because we believe it dropped down fully formed from heaven, but because the conclusions we draw from it 
have such a deep and powerful impact. We can draw eternal truths about immediate concerns from it only if we bring knowledge and experience and common sense to our reading. And perhaps most importantly, if we use love to interpret scripture and not the other way around. So as to abortion, it's not in there. As scholar and theologian Bernard Brandon Scott explains, the sacred writings of Israel and the Christian New Testament contain no mention of abortion. Why, in the whole of sacred scripture, is there no mention of abortion, no, much less no condemnation of it? Well, the general invisibility of women certainly forms a major part of the answer. When abortion took place, it took place out of men's view. Given the infrequency of mention of abortion in ancient writings as a whole, its absence in the scriptures of Israel and Christians should not surprise us. According to the patriarchal chain of being, females rate lower on the holiness scale, and their concerns are largely ignored, even in the Hebrew holy writings. This morning, I suggest to you, that this is a problem we, the religious left, right, and center, continue to perpetuate, ignoring women. Never mind that none of the texts that we use to prove our point do not include the experience, wisdom, or perspective of women, those who are most impacted. We will just grab a verse and say what we want it to say all too often. We do this all the time without thinking about it. Reverend Dr. Cheryl Anderson offers another example. Judges 19 is the story of the Levite's concubine. In that story, a Levite and his concubine are guests of a host in the town of Gabeah. While the two are there, the men of the city come to the host's door and demand that the Levite come out so that they may have intercourse with him. While the host is offering his virgin daughter and the concubine, the Levite hands over only his concubine to the crowd. The men rape and abuse her all night long and leave her barely alive, if not dead, at the door of the host the next morning. Conservative Christians, on the one hand, understand Judges 19 to condemn homosexuality, focusing on the intended act of the men in Gabeah, while liberal Christians see Judges 19 as addressing the issue of hospitality, focusing on the host's efforts to protect the Levite. Both interpretations are problematic for several reasons, but my point here is that both interpretations, whether done by conservatives or liberals, do not address the damaging way the females are treated in the text. My fear, Reverend Anderson writes, is that over time, ignoring the harm caused to women has become equated with the Christian tradition itself. If Christians are to hear the voices of women today, they need to start reading texts, such as Judges 19, in ways in which a woman's voice 
can be heard or in ways that make us aware of the silence where her voice should be heard. We see this reflected in the way abortion is covered by papers and in the evening news. The media often presents the issue of abortion as a debate. An article about abortion is very likely to include pictures of protesters and for the really balanced news sources, also pictures of counter-protesters, at least when they are not running a picture of a pregnant torso, no head included. We are so focused on the question of whether women should be allowed to get an abortion, we have missed the question of why they should want to and what the consequences are when they cannot. We hardly notice the silence where her voice should be heard. A note to say that there are people who are assigned female at birth and later identify as male or non-binary who also experience unintended pregnancy and seek abortion care. However, as Dr. Diane Green Foster, who conducted the landmark Turnaway study explains, the reason that contraceptives are so difficult to get, that decision-making ability is doubted, and that politicians feel they can weigh in on the most fundamental of decisions about one's body is precisely because the vast majority of people needing abortions are women. Sometimes we use the word women rather than the more inclusive people who need abortions so that we can highlight the misogyny and root cause of the problem. Women's voices are as absent from the public debate and policymaking about abortion as they are in scripture and in the church. Dr. Foster points out that many restrictions on abortion are passed with the justification that they make abortion safer or prevent women who might experience regret and psychological harm from getting an abortion. The political debate about abortion has shifted in the last few decades instead of focusing on the rights of fetuses versus the rights of women. Anti-abortion advocates and lawmakers have tried to reframe the abortion debate as a women's health issue, suggesting that abortion hurts women, leading to depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. Where evidence is lacking, policymakers have routinely invented it. In 2007, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy, writing the majority opinion upholding a ban on one abortion procedure performed later in pregnancy, seized an opportunity to weigh in on the emotional and mental state of women who have abortions. He wrote, while we find no reliable data to measure the phenomenon, it seems unexceptional to conclude some women come to regret their choice to abort the infant life they once created and sustained. Severe depression and loss of esteem can follow. So in case you missed that, Justice Kennedy used the emotional and mental state of women who have abortions to ban an abortion procedure while at the same time acknowledging that there was no reliable data on the emotional and mental state of women who have abortions. How generous of him to offer a solution to a problem he isn't sure exists. For us to get reliable data, we would actually have to 
listen to women. We would need to ask women what happens to them when they get the abortions they want and what happens to them when they do not get the abortions they want. Much to most of our surprise, in 1987, then-President Ronald Reagan directed his Surgeon General to issue a comprehensive medical report on the health effects, physical and emotional, of abortion on women. The Surgeon General referred to was C. Everett Koop, an acclaimed pediatric surgeon who was very publicly opposed to abortion. The doctor had written a book and produced short films arguing that abortion would inevitably lead to forced euthanasia for seniors and people with disabilities. He had previously toured the country giving multimedia presentations on the evils of abortion. This is the man who was charged with finding evidence that abortions hurt women. Reagan and his religious right constituents hoped that Koop's report would provide the basis for abortion to be legislated accordingly. However, Koop could find no such evidence. Koop surprised his initial critics with his comment to his commitment to science and public health, even in the face of religious and political opposition, when he ultimately concluded that the existing data, showing either that abortion was harmful or that it wasn't, were rife with methodological problems. He wrote, I regret, Mr. President, that in spite of diligent review on the part of many in the public health service and in the private sector, the scientific studies do not provide conclusive data about the health effects of abortion on women. It was not until the same year that Justice Kennedy made his unfounded claims about the emotional and mental state of women who have had abortions that Dr. Foster and a team of social scientists put together a plan to study the outcomes of both birth and abortion for women with unwanted pregnancies, which they called the Turnaway Study. For over 10 years, the team of researchers tracked the experiences of women who'd received abortions or had been denied them because of clinic policies on gestational age limits. The team regularly interviewed each of nearly a thousand women for five years. The too long didn't read version of the study is this. The turnaway study found no evidence that abortion hurts women. For every outcome analyzed, women who received an abortion were either the same or, more frequently, better off than women who were denied an abortion. Abortion opponents often accuse women seeking abortions of being misinformed, irresponsible, or amoral. In fact, as the Turnaway study results make clear, women make thoughtful, well-considered decisions about whether or not to have an abortion. In other words, the study listened to women and that is why Mayflower Church is hosting the Focus on Abortion exhibit in our fellowship hall. The exhibit tells the stories of 19 individuals who have had abortions and others who are close to the abortion experience. The book, also titled Focus on Abortion, that accompanies the exhibit has even more stories, 62 to be exact, mostly of women who come from diverse socioeconomic backgrounds and generations. 
and it provides a broad, complex, and poignant picture of abortion in our country. These nuanced stories have the potential to mitigate the profound stigma that surrounds abortion. This was apparent to us after the exhibit was up for just two days in our fellowship hall. A handful of people were in the building for non-church-related business while our reproductive justice team was setting up the exhibit. And those folks were demonstrably irritated that a church would engage in anything other than full-throated anti-abortion rhetoric. But later in the day, some of them came back to that end of the building to read the stories and to look at the portraits. Their facial expressions softened. Their tone changed. They recognized themselves in the circumstances, choices, and experiences shared. I have no illusions that they are going to start donating money to Planned Parenthood, but that's not what we're after. Our work and ministry in this congregation is to create conditions that increase our capacity for connection, compassion, and care. When we are asked why this congregation is hosting this exhibit, it is because we want to be a congregation that leads by example, a congregation that leads by conversation, a congregation that leads by refusing to continue the practice of silencing women, a congregation that leads by trusting women. Which brings us back to Psalm 139. I had not forgotten it. I had not forgotten our search for eternal truths that speak to our immediate concerns. The psalmist says, O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. Which makes it sound like God is very attentive to, very interested in, our experience, wisdom, and perspective. The psalmist is convinced that God cares about what is on our hearts and minds. God cares about our stories. Perhaps the eternal truth then in this text is that we should be just as attentive to, just as interested in each other's thoughts, knowing each other's hearts, just like the holy is interested. May God grant us wisdom and courage to listen. Amen. You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Rev. Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. 
Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.